Welcome in, fish fans, to another episode, episode six of Swimming Upstream. And folks, we have a very special treat for you today. This is definitely going to be my favorite episode. And we've had great episodes so far of this show, Daniel and me doing our countdown, some great guests. But this guest that has graciously agreed to come on and join me today is one of my favorite people to work next to. You guys know me and my nicknames by now. I like to hand out my nicknames. And for me, in 2020, guys, this gentleman is the superstar. He's the road warrior. He's an unstoppable force. The absolute goat of Marlins Media for me in 2020, BBWAA member Jordan McPherson. He takes a small break from the press box or the sideline or wherever he is covering whatever sport he's doing, not just baseball. This man does co college football, high school football. I've seen him doing the Pan Florida Panthers beat. This guy just does everything, okay? But he's definitely taking a very, very gracious time out to join me today on the podcast, and I really appreciate it. So, Jordan, thanks so much again for joining me on the pod. Uh, we know you continue to be a very busy man, uh, even though the regular baseball season is over and the postseason as well. But first off, how are you doing uh, after following this Marlins club at home and on the road through everything that went through this season? Hopefully you're finding some time to rest up a bit. <laughs> yeah, well, first off, thanks for having me on, Alex. And, yeah, it was a pretty busy season despite the fact that it was only two and a half months. I mean, with everything the team went through with COVID and that three-month layoff in between spring training being shut down and the uncertainty of whether there was going to be a season to – basically restocking their roster to making a playoff run that nobody could have seen coming. It was a fun ride. It was a busy ride. And I mean, the off season's here, but so I am getting some time off a little bit of time for some R and R, but there's a lot still going on. There's a lot of moves the team has to make. They made history with the hiring of Kim Ang as general manager. And we've got a busy couple months before spring training picks up. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it never stops, right? Like, you know, even though the season's over, there's still more to get to. And that leads to my first question for you uh, regarding the season that uh, has just ended. Uh, you know, you were there most of the way through. Um, take us through the season. I mean, the unprecedented season that it was. Everyone knows you. You're this, a stable on Marlins Twitter. Um, you're a go-to source for Marlins information, for me included, and all the fans. Um, so they also know you're, you're, you're jet-setting on the regular. You know, you're following this club in the midst of this global pandemic. So just a brief recap of the season. Uh, what happened with you when things got bad in Philly? the restart, all the doubleheaders, the postseason. How much of a whirlwind was this season for you personally? It, a whirlwind is probably a really good way to describe it. I mean, that first weekend, that Sunday specifically, when we're on the pregame media access waiting to talk with Don Mattingly and we just get the message, hey, Jose Urania got scratched, Robert Duggar's starting, we're, Mattingly's not available, we'll talk to everybody postgame. And that just got the gears turning a little bit. I was in the press box in Philly and was basically trying to do a head count of everybody who was at practice, who was out there during warmups and started just checking off who wasn't there. And then Monday morning when their flight back to Miami got canceled, it was like, okay, this is going to be worse than I originally thought. Because at that point we knew that there were, gonna, there were four guys at that point. We knew that Alfaro got put on the IL right before opening day, Urania getting scratched. And then knowing that Harold and, Garrett Cooper weren't there. We knew there were four. And then when we start seeing hearing the number, we hear the number at 13 right on right that Monday, it was like, this is going to get serious. Is their season over after three days? And then that entire week of watching the case numbers rise, go up to as many as 19 on the team, and then seeing just 
waiting to find out clarity while also reporting on everything on a day-to-day basis. It was probably one of the biggest growing experiences for me as a reporter. I mean, this is only my second year on the beat. It's only my, this is only my third year full-time as a reporter out of college. So this was the first big experience I had to, that I had to cover. And I was on the ground with them for those first couple of days. I went back to Miami on Tuesday and I was right back up there with them in Baltimore when they finally picked things up. And it was, it was a lot. And then to watch the team just continue on as the season unfolded, win all four games in Baltimore, win the first game against the Mets, have a winning record going back after 23 days on the road. And they were only supposed to be on the road for five days to see that, to see the, the grit and the, just the want to of the team and basically them winning with a hodgepodge roster for so much of the season. It was really eye-opening to watch from up close and then to take a step back and look at it all again this offseason. It just makes you think, how the heck did they do this? And to know that we're, we're going to be seeing a lot of these guys again in 2021 and how much this experience, despite the bad situation they were put into, how much it's actually going to help the team moving forward. Sure. I mean, said it all right there. And, you know, I started on the Marlins beat, you know, uh, with my project, you know, kind of at the same time that Jordan did, for those of you that don't know, I I remember seeing you out with Wells all the time when you guys were first starting. And uh, it's been awesome to see you grow your career and really, really uh, admiring to see uh, how you've grown as a reporter. Uh, In that uh, that light, um, if you can here, uh, name, I know there's probably a few, but name the biggest thing that the 2020 season taught you about your career as a reporter. Um, and how, despite, you know, the negativity all around, has it benefited you? Yeah, so the biggest thing for me is really to not take anything for granted. I mean, this year there was so much, there was less access this year because of obviously everything COVID, everything was through Zoom, everything was more group setting compared to during a normal season, we're in the clubhouse, we're able to go get our one-on-ones with guys, we're able to talk to them to the so- off to the side, build those relationships, and this year, once spring training got halted back in middle of March, all of that more or less went away. Yes, I, yes, we were able to get some – I was able to get a couple one-on-ones off to the side while I was on the road, but those were – it was basically phone calls. It wasn't really a chance to actually go up and talk to Miguel Ross and just go, hey, buddy, congratulations. I know your number, baby number two is on the way. Just not be able to go up to him one-on-one and just talk about personal things or just – different things away from the normal baseball setting when we're in the Zoom calls that we had to do this year. So learning how to adapt to that and try to build those relationships despite everything being in a group setting, that to me was the biggest thing that I learned from the reporting side of it. And then just from regular day-to-day life, it's, again, even with the pandemic and everything that was going on, I still got to cover a baseball season. I still got to be at Marlins Park every day that they were there. I got to go on a handful of road trips to cover them, even though it was everything was beyond an arm's length away, still being able to do the job I love and know that at any given moment, something could get taken away. So it was just making the most of the opportunity and making sure nothing is taken for granted as we continue to go through this pandemic. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, Definitely for me, the same. I mean, not being able to go into those clubhouses pre or post game and just, you know, go up to the guy that you want to get a word from, you know, you got to go through these calls and the process, you know, uh, you got to get on the call and you got to raise your hand. You know, it, it was different. But I mean, the fact that we still had the access that we had, um, I think I can speak for both of us when we say that Jason Latimer and everybody with Marlins Media did the absolute best they could 
Um, you know, they made the most of the Zoom thing too, bringing in, you know, voices that maybe we wouldn't have heard from. Like, you know, Peter Pratt, who is one of my good friends who runs Marlins UK. You know, he, he wouldn't have gotten get to get into a clubhouse or anything like that, but he's in there able to ask Manning the question. So it's cool to, you know, hear from other reporters and other sides of the coin and potentially grow the fan base into other areas of the country. So I definitely think that they did a great job uh, with what they had. Um, you know, it's it, it's it was definitely a hard case for them to, you know, what do we do? You know, how do we get the word out about this team? How do we let these these sources continue to cover this team? And I think they did the best that they possibly could. So uh, kudos to them. Uh, as a follow-up to our last question here, Jordan, on, uh, you know, growing what it did for your career, um, you know, the, the most interesting thing that you saw on the road or at Marlins Park this year in this landscape, whether it be on a plane, airport, press box, how a team did something, what is it for you? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, honestly, I would say, I mean, my trip to Philly was my first time leaving the state and really doing anything outside of Broward or Miami-Dade since the pandemic started. So my first flight honestly freaked me out. I'm not going to lie. I mean, I did everything I needed to do before. I got a COVID test, obviously tested negative or else I wouldn't have gone. Uh, did the mask up, had hand sanitizer as much as I could get through security. And just the fact uh, that I was able to see how much – precaution everybody took at that the airport that first time and again this was back in July this was uh late June early July so this was still we were the thing case were really starting to pick up here in South Florida mm -hmm. so the fact that I was getting on the flight just that experience alone took a lot for me to adjust and what and then just seeing how press boxes and those experiences were different this year I mean, in Marlins Park, instead of being in the main setting, the main press box, myself, the Associated Press, MLB.com, we, we all had, we were all in our own booths. And everybody who was in the, the main press box were spaced out seven to eight seats apart. So just seeing how, despite how connected we were and how close a lot of us were, just how separated we all were this year, it added a little bit of reality to the moment, but also provided that that contrast of we're separated, but we're still at a ballpark. We were doing something that I bet almost any Marlins fan would have killed to be able to go in for at least one game, especially during this run this year. So it was, it was very odd to be at places where there were no fans. Obviously Philly had the cutouts, Atlanta had the cutouts. The Marlins ended up having the, having the same toast crunch things in left field, but being at a park with, the fake crowd noise, which was eerie on opening day, and then I got used to it after the fact. It took a little, little bit of getting used to. Yeah, I mean, I was there in spring training too when they started testing out the crowd noise, and you'd see Jesus Aguilar come out of the dugout and wave to the art, the, the, yeah. the the phantom crowd that was there. It's definitely like an eye-opening experience. Like this is really what it's going to be like. Like I, you know, it it was definitely different. And then you know, I was sitting next to Joe Forsaro and. Uh, uh, da um, Danny from El Extra Base one time and uh, uh, one of the uh, staffers from the stadium came out and they were sitting right next to each other in seats and he was like yeah you got to split up I mean it, it to me I, I was like looking over at it I was like we see each other every day like every time that I'm there I see these guys they see each other more often because they're there almost every day every game and it, it's just like you can't even sit next to each other so it, it was definitely I know it's necessary but it was definitely like a different experience like definitely a unique experience so 
Uh, but we got through it, and uh, hopefully next season things will uh, turn around and we'll be able to have fans, at least in some capacity, out like they did at the World Series. But we'll see what happens. Um, but uh, definitely, Jordan, uh, in my mind, you provided the absolute best coverage of this club in 2020, beginning in spring training, continuing through everything that went on. You know, it's a privilege for me, I told you, to get to work next to you when I do, um, and an equal privilege to call you one of my colleagues. So before we get into the club, I want to ask you a couple questions there, of course. On behalf of me, myself, uh, everybody listening to this, Marlins fans, you know, Marlins Twitter, everybody else, we, I really want to thank you on behalf of everybody for everything that you provided this season, putting yourself on the line to provide unparalleled coverage of this club and just keep that stuff going. So it's really great, and thank you again, and we appreciate it. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you saying that. I mean, this is my job. This is something I love to do, and I'm glad that I'm able to provide the coverage that I was able to provide this year and hoping to keep it up once we – getting to 2021, which we're about two and a half months away, man. For sure. Definitely. Uh, now, let's let's get into a couple about, you know, our boys, right? Marlins. Um, mm -hmm. About this 2020 club, you already alluded to it. What else can we say other than impressive? I mean, just in, infinitely impressive. Through everything that we just mentioned, they make the playoffs for the first time in 17 years, and they do it via contributions, uh, a lot of contributions from the guys that I cover, uh, that we both cover, but mm -hmm. uh, me exclusively, right? Uh, the kids. Uh, Jordan, uh, of the kids that we saw in spring and in the regular season and the reports we got out of uh, the uh, instructs uh, after the season was over here, uh, who are two guys, name two, uh, who left the biggest impression on you as guys who are ready to contribute next season? We say two because we know it's, it's one is already – we know who one is already going to be. But please, pick two. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shy away from a couple of the – bigger obvious names because I'm pretty sure we're going to talk about them later on sure. but uh one name that I'll stick out right away I'm gonna go with Jazz Chisholm as my number one just his bat started to show up later when he came on full-time in those last couple weeks and in the postseason and we saw a little bit of the pop but that defense is just it's incredible to watch it's like another Miguel Rojas in the making and with the fact that Miguel Rojas is more like I mean Miguel Rojas should be your starting shortstop in 2021. So watching what the Marlins do, which it's looking like it's going to be Chisholm versus Isan Diaz versus John Birdie at second base, watching how that unfolds is going to be something that I'm really looking forward to watching once we get into next season with spring training. I feel like that's going to be one of the many, many battles that we're going to be watching for. And as we look through trying to figure out the 26th for opening day, and then second, I mean, there are a bunch of pitchers. I mean, I know we can talk about Sixto Sanchez, but I'm assuming we're going to talk more in depth about him a little bit later. I'm going to go with the other guy who made his debut and was in the rotation. I'm going to go with Trevor Rogers because I was on the fence about him going into spring training, not going to lie. I know he's one of their top ten prospects. He was a first-round pick a few years ago. Personally, going into spring training last year, I liked Braxton Garrett over Trevor Rogers, And Trevor has started to convert me toward the end of last season. I mean – we saw him start to get – I'm going to go specifically with his final two regular season starts. How he turned himself around, I think it was in the third inning against the Braves, after getting shelled the first two innings. He comes out and gives the – and I believe the exact words were, I don't give a bleep attitude, and just started mowing the Braves down, and then finished off on a high note in his three innings against the Yankees. To see him be able to flip the switch like that after having a pretty successful – miniature seven-start season as it was, it gave me a lot of confidence in what we're going to see from him moving forward. He has the stuff, the confidence after having a couple bad starts was 
what I wanted to see. I wanted to see that response, and he showed it. So I was really impressed with that. And as a third, I'm going to talk very briefly about him. Uh, I got to give a lot of kudos to Dan Cassano. He's not, he's not a ranked prospect. He's not in the top 30. He was the quote-unquote throw-in fourth piece from that Marcelo Zuna trade. The dude still had six starts, seven appearances, had a 303 ERA in an inning more than Trevor Rogers and about nine innings less than Sixto Sanchez. So more or less the same sample size. He had a better ERA than Sixto and Trevor. He had a better batting average on ball and play allowed than both of them. He, the team went four and three in the games he appeared. They went three and four in both Sixto and Trevor's starts. So they got about the same production. And again, because he wasn't one of the top 30 guys and he was really only here for doubleheader days for the most part at the end of the year, sort of flew under the radar. But I think he could possibly carve out that long relief role the Marlins couldn't find last year because with all the rotation depth, he's probably not going to crack that five. Right. If he can show that he can be a long relief guy, which he kind of did in the series season finale against the Yankees, that might be his way to get himself into the, line, into the rotation or in the, into the bullpen at some point. For sure, yeah. I love all three of those guys that you mentioned. Um, just a quick comment on each jazz. Um, for me, that, that last game that he was in in the postseason, what did he sit for before that? Like eight days, I think, or something yeah. like that? He didn't even get into a game. And then Mattingly's like, I love his energy. I think he's going to, you know, liven up the dugout. I think he's going to, you know, bring something with his speed and his glove, which you mentioned. And then he goes out there, and I think he got on base twice in that game and mm-hmm. almost did a homer. I think they even had to review that play for a homer. Yeah. In the ninth inning, they're down by how many runs? Well behind. And he goes out there, still fighting, and still able to keep the game positive and almost hits a bomb. So, yeah, the bat definitely came alive a little bit more at the end of the year for him. Um, I think that he looked a lot better in his final, like, three or four appearances. We talked about this as a tiny sample size. But if he can continue to stay behind the ball like he did in those last three, four starts, he's going to be really special. And a standout guy. Like, there's nobody more infectious than Jazz Chisholm. Like, loves baseball, loves the fans, always smiling. Love the kid. I think he's going to be a cornerstone of this rebuild in this franchise for a while. Um, Trevor, uh, talk to him in spring training. Um, last year coming up, really didn't have a third pitch. Was working on two, the cutter and the changeup. And that changeup this year, it's a plus, maybe even a plus plus pitch for him. And for him to grow that pitch as much as he did from spring training this year through the shutdown and continue to get it working at the ATS and everything else, then coming up and doing what he did, can't say enough. Agree with you that I think he hopped Braxton. Still love Braxton, but I think Braxton's got a little bit more to figure out in terms of the control. But and the command as well. But, um, yeah, I love both of those guys. think Braxton's due for a, probably a big minor league season here. Hopefully he can get it back going and figure out his few problems. But Trevor has that main lefty piece. Uh, love it. Um, and then you're talking about Dan Castano. I really love that you mentioned him because he's one of my favorite guys in the organization. Um, I call him the Italian Stallion on Twitter, and all my following knows that. Um, really the unheralded guy through his minor league year. He's a little older, you know. But everything you mentioned, just solid, right? Not wipe out. He's not going to come in and strike out 10, 11 guys in the start. Or, you know, even if he is a starter going forward, which he probably won't be, he'll probably be a pen piece. But like you said, answers that question for mop-up long relief and just gets outs. So solid guy there. Uh, love all three of them. Uh, so uh, next question. Um, obviously the big latest breaking news surrounding the club and pretty much all of baseball. Um, and it's awesome to have the national spotlight on the Marlins. And for all the right reasons, not the wrong reasons this time, which we saw with the pandemic, those were the wrong reasons. Now we get the right reasons, and we come and get the first female GM in MLB history with Kim Ang. And somebody said it on Twitter, and they're absolutely right, this shouldn't just be noticed because she's female. It should be noticed because she finally got the opportunity that she absolutely deserves. I definitely agree with that, but it's still cool to have 
that groundbreaking moment. And uh, definitely a nod to Jeter Sherman and the like for bringing her in because I think she's going to be of real value to the organization. The uh, I think you agree, Jordan, there. Uh, the um, question I have for you on this, uh, as we get into hot stove season here, um, of course the big names are going to be thrown around, Lindor, Real Muto, LeMahieu, you know, the middle infielders that we're looking for, everything else. Um, obviously, we know the system is stacked, you know, definitely for the long term at most positions. Uh, there are guys who should be able, you know, to start contributing pretty quickly, um, maybe within the next year or two um, on the big stage. Uh, that being said, how do you see free agency shaking out this year, uh, Jordan, with Kim and the Marlins? Do you think she's going to want to make that big statement and go out and get that big free agent name? Or do you think she's going to continue to build from within and maybe build the prospect pool a little bit more? What do you think? Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. And what they do on Wednesday's non-tender deadline is really going to be telling in my mind because you look specifically at first base where you have Jesus Aguilar, you have Garrett Cooper, and then you have Lewin Diaz where, the, the, where Derek Jeter and the organization basically since day one said, we're going to build up the minor leagues. We're going to get these prospects. Once they get up to the top level, we need to be able to make sure they have the opportunity to compete. And we saw a little bit of Lewin last year. Do they think Lewin's ready in 2021? And if they do, what do they do with the log jam in front of them with Garrett Cooper and Jesus Aguilar both being there and the uncertainty of if there's going to be a DH in the NL in 2021? Are you going to keep both of them? Are you going to keep both Cooper and Aguilar? Are you going to try to flip one of the two and try to trade one of them to either bring in another piece to build with the big, in the big leagues or try to stockpile some more prospects? Are you going to give Lewin basically full reign or have him platoon with one of them is a lefty-righty at first base. What they do with that is going to be telling about how direct they're going to be with giving these prospects who a lot of their big guys got a little bit of the taste last year, and we're going to see how much of a leash they're going to give them right out, right out of the gate. Because you have a Jazz Chisholm who you can easily see him and Eson at second base. You can have a Leighwin Diaz game time at first base. You have all of your outfielders who really you only have one spot for right now with Corey in left and Starling Marte in center. So you have to figure out how, what they're going to do with Lewis Brinson, with Mag Sierra, with Monty Harrison, with Jesus Sanchez, eventually J.J. Blade. The list just keeps going on and on. Gerard Encarnacion a year or so down the road. You're going to have to see how they're going to handle all of that. Are they going to end up flipping a guy like Corey who's on last year's contract at the trade deadline? Or Marte, for that matter, at the trade deadline to start getting the prospects in? Or are they going to go out and find a mid-tier veteran who has a steady bat who they can automatically upgrade the offense with? It's that little cat and mouse game that we have to continue to figure out. And we're going on year four of this now of them trying to find that balance of figuring out how much time to get the prospects who they've been growing for the years versus how much they need to immediately improve the offense and not wait for the guys to go through, their, go through more growing pains to finally get there. So I don't know exactly how aggressive they're going to be. They're going to have to do something in the offseason. They're going to have to probably get a couple guys to get some bullpen competition at the very least. I would think they're going to pick up at least one or two bats, even if it's just guys who are NRIs going into spring training. But they're going to do something. I wouldn't expect the big flashy hires. No, JT Ramuto is not coming. No, I can't see a way of DJ LeMahieu coming. I can't see a way of Marcelo Zuna coming back. But they can, they'll probably make a couple signings, but not the big flashy names that everyone's hoping What now that the, the GMs here are trying to flex their guns. 
right? I definitely agree with you. I, I don't think those those big names are coming, unfortunately, to the Marlins. Um, it will be awesome, but I, I don't think it's happening. I just don't see a route to it, like you mentioned. But um, definitely could get some some solid value in free agency. There's other pretty good free agency classes here and definitely some positions of need, one being this one for my next question for you, catcher. Um, I've had this conversation uh, on Twitter with a bunch of our following uh, Marlins Twitter uh, and other people as well, uh, you know, different fan bases. Um, and it's kind of been a split decision on what do we do with catcher? Um, on one side, we have those that say that Alfaro cannot be immediately judged based off of 2020, 93 at bats. And then we also have Will Banfield. Um, Will Banfield struggled last year with the bat. Um, wasn't too great with the arm, but I think that's going to fix itself. I think that was just a flash in the pan of a bad moment for him. But um, he really also impressed in Instructs. Um, actually, he was raved about from the things that I heard and read about Instructs is that Banfield really popped, right? So uh, on one side, you got that. But then there's those that say, you know, Alfaro, he's 27. He's been giving every opportunity. He was benched in the playoffs for Chad Wallach, you know. And then, you know, they say that we need somebody else, that, you know, he got his chances and he needs, we need to go somewhere else. Um, I, I'm kind of back and forth on it. Um, you know, I, I'm hopeful for Banfield. Um, I think Alfaro has gotten kind of a raw deal with injuries. He also had COVID. You know, I, I really don't think that there's enough to judge him. You know, and he came back as a highly regarded, you know, piece in, in, this, in a six-do trade, right? Uh, so, you know, those on the latter side of that have been promoting trade ideas, including prospects that are close to the big leagues, such as Braxton, who we talked about, and Jesus Sanchez, and then including some little bit of farther away pieces you mentioned, like Gerard. Um, you know, and their defense for doing so is that we have the depth, so why not do it? We have the outfield depth. We need a catcher, so trade some of the depth and go get a catcher. We've heard of Wilson Contreras, Salvador Perez, um, maybe Christian Vasquez from the Red Sox. You know, the guys like this that maybe the Marlins would try to ask about, right, uh, if they do decide to get a catcher. So wh where are you on this, uh, Jordan? Uh, where do you think the Marlins turn this offseason regarding the backstop position? What do you think? Yeah, it's a good question. Like you, I've gone back and forth. I mean, we saw a really good amount of growth from Jorge Alfaro, at, specifically at the plate at the end of 2019. We saw a little more discipline. He actually drew walks, which is almost an anomaly with him. We saw, a, we saw some growth in 2019. Him having Cervelli with him in 2020 for spring training and, well, really, I guess we can only say spring training because by the time that Alfaro got back after COVID, Cervelli was more or less out of commission with the concussion and retired. So, but having that veteran presence, I think, was something that was going to be a net positive for Alfaro last season. And I, I want. I think the Marlins need to give Alfaro at least one more year to, one full year to prove himself after showing some strides in 2019, and then obviously 2020. It feels like for a lot of players, it could have been a wash year. I want to see after 2021 is when I think I'll be able to make my true judgment on both him and Will Banfield because again, Will Banfield hasn't been above Class A, hasn't been above A ball yet. So I want to see what he's able to do as he progresses through the minors. And I want to see another year of growth from him as well before I make a true judgment on whether or not he's going to be have a chance to be the catcher of the future. I think he can be. He has the potential to be the catcher of the future, but he's still a couple years away at a minimum. So I would think Alfaro's your guy for 2021. Bring in somebody else to, whether it's splitting time or someone who has some veteran presence that can sort of have that Cervelli role from last year and sort of be that mentor slash platoon guy. And then after 2021, make your full judgment call. So again, you still have three years control of Alfaro with, with him just entering arbitration now. Chad Wallach's not that bad of a plan B situation. He's shown some moments throughout his time here. But 
after this year, they're going to really need to start making some judgment calls here. Right. Yeah, I definitely agree there. You know, we mentioned, I, I kind of go back and forth. I can see the one side that says, you know, we gave off our own chance, but then the bulk of me says, we got to wait one more season, you know, based off, you know, 2020, if he comes back and still is struggling, you know, with injuries and everything else, then it's time to make a call. I definitely agree. Um, next question for you here. It's on the minor league system. Uh, another big story, possibly the biggest regarding minor league baseball, because there wasn't a lot of minor league baseball news this year because there was no season being played uh, lately. Uh, well, you know, lately, meaning last yeah. before before this week with the draft league and everything. But before that, we heard about, you know, the lines being redrawn to limit the travel, right? Uh, so, unfortunately, the Marlins likely won't ever play a game in Wichita, Kansas, which uh, is kind of depressing for me because it was really a joy to uh, talk to the late Lou Schweikheimer, um, who was the uh, president of the Baby Cakes and Zephyrs, um, and really had that dream of being baseball bringing baseball back to Kansas. Thankfully, baseball will likely be played in Kansas, but it won't be with the Marlins. So for me, that kind of sucked. Uh, you know, uh, I do wish Wichita the best. I definitely think they have a good thing going there. It looks like a beautiful park. But instead, we'll redraw the lines with minor league baseball. It's looking very much like this, Jordan, for, uh, in terms of everything that we see. AAA, it's probably going to be the Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp. Um, talking to Ken Babby, you know, their president, uh, I talked to him like a year and a half ago, and he really – loves double-A baseball. He owns two teams in double-A baseball, the Shrimp and the Akron Rubber Ducks, actually, and didn't really want to move. You know, he had the opportunity to move previously. He didn't really want to. Now he pretty much probably will have to. Um, but I think that they'll be perfectly fine. Uh, Pensacola at double-A. Pensacola coming over, I believe, from the red system, I want to say? Or Twins, I think. Twins? Yeah. I don't know. I may have that mixed up. I've been looking at every affiliate, kind of trying to redraw and see where we could go. But Twins, maybe you may be right. Uh, and then we'll stick with uh, Jupiter, but Jupiter moves to low A. They move from high A to low A. So they'll, they'll definitely very likely be moving uh, tiers here down to the low A. Um, and then uh, another uh, affiliate coming in to join the Marlins. Um, it's looking like it's probably going to be the Asheville Tourists. Um, that's what I'm hearing. I also heard uh, a mention of Beloit because Pensacola and Beloit share the same ownership group. Mm -hmm. But in, in either regard, um, uh, aside from, you know, where we go, uh, you know, how do you think this is going to benefit Marlins minor league players being closer to Miami? And how will it benefit those minor league players in their development? What do you think? Well, with them being closer to Miami, I think that it's, I mean, obviously when you have the situations of call-ups and the traveling, it's going to make that a lot more streamlined considering you're more or less all in-state or right here selfishly from my standpoint when I get to make my minor league trips it makes it easier for me to justify my to my bosses making those trips so I'm I'm all for it but in terms of that I think it's going to help them just from the fact of being closer to home being closer to the home base of Miami big picture though I mean the minor league system as long as if you're I mean having the four the four groups a high a double a triple a that's gonna be able to be so close to be able to move guys back and forth will be a plus but also, I'm thinking about the fact of after the draft happens and there's no short season anymore, I'm thinking of how it's down to just basically the GCL, how the development for the lower level guys is going to be. I'm looking forward to seeing how all that gets implemented and how the, how the Marlins and their development staff continue to adjust there, knowing that they have a couple less spots to send guys to since there's no pen league anymore. There's no, there's no, I'm blanking on the other leagues, but there's, there's less opportunities for them to be able to have guys at certain spots other than sending them straight to the full season, full season ball, two thirds of the way in. 
So seeing how they adjust there and make those and make those and how they bounce around with that is going to be interesting. And it's just it's the next wave of how organized baseball is being adjusted. And obviously COVID is going to be the reasoning behind it or the official reasoning that's going to be used for why they're condensing everything, even though we all unfortunately have seen this as a long time coming. But just I'm hoping for the best that it stays, that this is the smallest that it gets contracted to, just because of seeing the growth and seeing the opportunities diminish, just it makes it that much tougher on the sport as a whole. Yeah, definitely agree. Um, I, you know, I, I think the streamlined travel will be better. You know, you, you, you interview some of these minor leaguers and they just detest the bus trips, you know, sitting on the bus to go all the way up the coast of Florida from here, in, you know, in Jupiter to Sarasota, sometimes even farther if you go to the AA level. So, you know, and AAA level as well. So, I, yeah, I definitely think that it would benefit the players and their stamina <laughs> in terms of, like, readiness to play. So I, I think the, that, you know, uh, that fast of it will at least be good for the players, for the players' sake and families or anything else. So uh, hopefully it, it works out like Jordan said and we, uh, we see it a little more streamlined and we can all stay healthy and keep them on the field. Um, by the way, a quick note on the Pensacola Blue Wahoos. Minority owner of that club is Bubba Watson, PGA oh. Tour golfer. Okay. Back there, coming to join the Marlins, Bubba Watson and their uh, affiliation. So that'll be cool. Uh, <laughs> so uh, a couple more here, Jordan, for you. Um, I got a couple player specific um, too. Uh, I'm going to ask you about a guy that we already mentioned. I'm going to jump into him a little more, Sixto. So, uh, you know, kind of saw a tale of two guys uh, when, it, when, you know, he came to join the Marlins this year. Came up and dominated. Uh, but then the reports got out. We saw the nerves come out a little bit on six, though. Sliders showed that it needed a little bit of work, struggled in a couple starts there at the end and then in the playoffs as well. Uh, but this is a guy who's been through a lot in his career. We both know that, especially with the injury and the slow build back from it that he went through. Um, but he's always been able to take the next step forward, right? So your thoughts on six, though, and what the focus will be for him this offseason and this spring leading up to 2021? Yeah, I mean, I mean six, though, his first five starts were – absolutely fantastic it had me thinking in the back of my mind that despite his late debut that he had a chance to be in that be in the running for rookie of the year and then the nationals the second time around got to him the braves the second time around and then the third time around the playoffs got to him and it was just a matter of him learning to adjust to teams the way that they adjusted to him the second time around that's where he just completely fell apart he wasn't able to just rely on the fact he could blow past guys with a 101-mile-an-hour fastball and a 92-mile-an-hour changeup, which is still ridiculous to watch, by the way. Watching him throw that changeup with the same grip as his two-seamer and honestly just making players look silly whenever early on just was just befuddling to watch. And it was great to see it in person for the first time when he, when he made his home debut. But – yeah, he needs to learn how to start game planning a little bit more. He needs to learn how to scout his opponents. He needs to he needs to sort of do what's he needs to take a page out of Sandy Alcantara's book and have the confidence in his stuff and go in there go in there knowing that you have the stuff, but knowing that you have to use your stuff in the right way in order to be successful. We saw the little we saw the struggles early on with Sandy back in 2019. And then after the all-star break, he just found something that worked. It clicked, and ever since then, Sandy has looked like the ace that everybody's thinking Sixto is going to be within the next couple of years. If Sixto can find a way to do what Sandy did did over the last year and a half, 
and you have the two of them, and then eventually Edward Cabrera as your one, two, three, that could be a very powerful rotation to watch for the next few years. Talking with Jordan McPherson here, guys, BBWAA member from the Miami Herald. Uh, a great source for everything Marlins. If you guys already don't follow him, please do. He's at J underscore McPherson1126 on Twitter. Uh, if you don't follow him, I, I, I can't imagine there's any Marlins fans that are listening to this that don't already follow Jordan. But if you don't, please do. <laughs> a second player specific here for you, Jordan, um, Monte Harris. Um, Monte Harrison, um, for me, uh, came over in the same trade uh, for Yelich as Lewis Brinson. And for me, Jordan, I see a lot of the same struggles that Brinson had in Monte Harrison. Um, for me, I see a lot of these same issues, the mechanical adjustments that he's continued to make, um, you know, and he's fixed it a little bit, yes, but he hasn't fixed it all the way. And he's been through several mechanical adjustments. So for me, the swing just has too many moving parts. Um, he's causing the swing to get long because he's just doing too much before the swing. He kind of pulls the top half off and he's really struggling making contact. When he does make contact, it's great, right? We see the ball fly. He's got beautiful power, um, speed, great athleticism, probably the most athletic guy in the organization. Uh, but yeah, just those, those struggles with the swing and the execution for me. Um, Brinson, uh, he was able to fix these issues. Um, he did also go through a lot of mechanical adjustments. He started to fix the issues, I should say. I don't think he's fixed them all the way either. But he started to fix them. We saw his bat pop a little bit late this season, right? Um, you know, he's really just staying streamlined. Um, he started to make more contact. He's just staying straight away at the plate. Getting back to the basics of hitting, you know, putting the bat on the ball first and worrying about the power second, which for Monte, that should come very, very naturally. Um, those are my feelings on Monte. Obviously, he's made uh, a big mark in spring training. But during the season, taking COVID trip, you know, taking COVID into account and then trips back and forth between the ATS, no minor league season. There's work to be done here. Um, again, the athleticism's there for sure, um, but we just need to see him, you know, I guess polish, right? That's the word, just to gain some more polish. So your thoughts here uh, on what needs to be done with Monte for him to succeed in this big outfield competition? But you know, you basically, you hit all the main points. I mean, to go off of when he, when he makes contact, he makes contact. He had a 170 batting average this year, obviously 26 strikeouts and 47 at bat. So you got to really, really figure out a way to work on that. His batting average on ball and pl balls in play was 350, which is really good, especially for a guy, which, again, it's a very limited sample size. He still has a lot to work on. But the fact that you can get him on the – if you get him on the base paths, you're basically get him, you're basically guaranteed to have a guy in scoring position within three pitches of him getting on first. He's going to steal the bag every chance he gets. He's can play anywhere in that outfield, which him being able to play defensively in center – gives him a little bit of an edge over some of the other guys, especially when he can play center, he can play it well. But, yeah, he needs to improve that swing. He needs to get more consistent at the plate because otherwise he's going to fall into the situation where we have with Lewis Brinson in all of 2019, which is no matter how much you like him, no matter how much you want to see the adjustment, how much you want to give him the opportunity, he has so many guys nipping on his heels. He has, there are so many guys who are fighting for – those one or two spots that they have up for grabs right now in the big league club, on the big league club that you really don't have much time to waste. And knowing the uber competitive guy that Monte is, I, I know he's going to more than likely working his tail off in the off season to make sure that he comes in fighting to keep the spot that he had on the roster when spring training begins. But that's going to be in addition to the second base battle between what's most likely to be the second base battle between Jazz and Eson in spring training, that outfield is going to be a lot of fun to watch again this offseason, just like it was last last spring training. 
Yeah, definitely hit it on the work ethic. I was going to mention that. If there's one guy who's going to do everything that he needs to do to succeed, it's Monte Harrison. Fantastic work ethic. Awesome personality. Love him as a person. I really hope he pans out because I think if he straightens out that swing, he's special. Um, all of that being said, Jordan, everything that we just talked about, I have final two questions to wrap it up here for you. 2021, opening day, Jordan McPherson starting lineup. Go ahead. All right. Pitcher opening day starter is going to be Sandy Alcantara. That should be a no-brainer. Jorge Alfaro will be a catcher. My gut is telling me Garrett Cooper at first base. Uh, second base, it really feels like a flip of the coin. Yeah. I'm going to go with – my gut's telling me that Jazz is going to start, but Eason is going to be there, be there on the bench. Rojas at short, Brian Anderson at third. Barring injury, those two should be the absolute no-brainers of anything I just said outside of Sandy Alcantara. Corey Dickerson in left, Starling Marte in center. I'm giving Lewis Brinson the Naya right field to open the season. Nice. He had, I mean, just the way that he finished the year, yes, they mostly platooned him, and, but he showed the results. He's the veteran of that young group, and my gut is just telling me that he's going to get the, they're going to give him the opportunity. But, and then you're going to have some sort of free eight in, for the rest of the bench. You're going to have John Birdie in there. Uh, my gut's telling me that whoever doesn't get it between Esau and Jazz is going to be there, but on the be- albeit on the bench, your backup catcher, and then you've got two more spots. My gut's going to be some out, some bat that they bring in during in free agency. I don't know who that is, but it's going to be someone. And then whoever, and then if they think Lewin Diaz is ready, I think he'll be up there. I think they'll have him as their number two first baseman. But again, a lot still r- rides on what happens with the designated hitter. If there's no designated hitter, then I think Lewin Diaz will definitely be there. You'll put you'll platoon him and Cooper at first base. But if designated hitter is there, that opens up some doors for the Marlins to have some extra options there. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I definitely agree mostly, uh, almost all the way with everything that you just said regarding the opening day lineup. The thing is this, guys. We're putting these veteran players in, and Lewis Brinson, you know, I guess he is the veteran of the group, as Jordan stated, but He's not an older guy. He's still a young kid, and he yeah. is showing the improvement that we saw. But the Marlins have absolutely, especially in terms of a missed minor league season, there's no reason to rush any of these kids, okay? I know we want to see them all. We want to see Bleday. We want to see – I want to see Peyton Burdick. He's one of my favorite people in the organization. He's still a couple years away. I know that. You know, all these guys that we want to see out there. You know, you want to see Braxton Garrett pitch a full season. There, there's no reason – Gerard to come up and hit some bombs. There's no reason to rush any of these kids. They are going to be where they need to be. I think Kim Ang is going to be the perfect purveyor for this system. I don't think she's going to rush anybody whatsoever. So I definitely agree with everything that Jordan said regarding his lineup. The flip of the coin is exactly what Jordan said, second base. That, I think, could go either way between Isan and Josh Chisholm. Um, love both guys. Um, you know, uh, we'll just see who wins it in spring training. And that's going to be a day-to-day battle. Uh, and we're going to see it pan out. And I'm excited for that. Uh, and we'll we'll both be there reporting on it for sure. I know Jordan will. I'll be there when I can as well. So uh, I'm really excited for that battle of spring training. Last question here for you, Jordan McPherson. We don't know how many games are going to be played in 2021, right? But let's just say for the sake of this conversation, MLB plays 162 games in 2021. Who knows if that's going to happen? Maybe, maybe not. Hopefully, we'll see. If – Theoretically, we have a 162-game season. Where do the Marlins finish 
in terms of record? Ah, my least favorite question that gets asked in every <laughs> single interview. I know it's coming. You told me it was coming, but even if you didn't tell me it was coming, I knew it was going to be coming. <laughs> I, I think they're going to be staying hovering around that 500 mark. I think it's going to be somewhere around an 80 and 82 record. Some, that's where my gut's heading. I loved what I saw from them last season in the 60-game season. Again, I'm not sure how much it'll be sustainable over 162, especially with, again, the smaller sample size leads, leads to a lot more for margin of error. But with that said, I think there's enough talent here and enough talent on the way, especially with that starting rotation, that they'll be able to at least hold par with where they were last year and stay somewhere in that 78 to 80 win range. So I'll just go with the high end of that, and I'll go 80 and 82, and I'll hope they prove me wrong and I'm able to cover a playoff team for a second year in a row. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a safe bet. Um, I definitely had them around the same thing, nearing 500, hopefully a little bit over. See what happens there. Uh, but that's Jordan McPherson, guys, Miami Herald. Uh, Jordan, I want to thank you guys, you personally, so much. Again, for joining me on the pod today. We are incredibly thankful, again, for your coverage. Uh, you are a go-to source for everything Marlins, and we couldn't be more grateful for you and to have you in terms of me as a reporter and as a fan. You're one of my go-to sources in both regards. I know I can say that about a lot of other people as well. And for the fans, you just do it all. You bring unparalleled coverage for this team, um, and you're still such a young reporter. So to watch your career grow as it has, as I stated at the beginning, in such a short period of time, it's amazing. Uh, you're a true talent. Um, thank you so much again for being here. Uh, and you're welcome on the show anytime. Again, I appreciate it, Alex. And anytime you want to have me on, just let me know. <laughs> for sure. That's Jordan McPherson, guys. Miami Herald joining us here. Uh, it's a very special guest on the pod, and we thank him again. If you aren't already, again, uh, and trust us, you're making a big mistake if you aren't. He's at J underscore McPherson 1126. And his insurmountable work can be found on the Miami Herald, both in print and electronically. That'll do it here for episode six of Swimming Upstream. We thank Jordan again for his time and for answering both his favorite questions and his least favorite question. And we'll see you guys next time.